Hello, you're listening to No Such Word Is Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. I get to sit down with Dr. Erin Frick-Gonzalez and I am so excited to talk about everything animal behaviour, psychology, diving into animal consciousness. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I think it's going to be such a fun conversation. Um, So for anyone listening who maybe hasn't read any of your papers or doesn't know who you are, um, could you give yourself a little brief introduction? Um, Sure. So currently um, I am an assistant professor of animal studies at Eckerd College um, in St. Petersburg, Florida. So that's where I'm currently based out of. Yeah, I'm originally from New Jersey um, and did my undergrad up at the University of New Hampshire, um, where I you know, majored in zoology. I definitely was always drawn to interested in working with animals, um, kind of started off wanting to get a little bit more involved in some of the animal kind of care side of things. Um, then at one point was really interested in doing veterinary medicine and going to vet school wanting to specialize in exotics, um, but then it wasn't really until I took this, like one of the animal behavior classes up there where things kind of clicked and I was like, ooh, this stuff, this is this is what I wanna do. Um, I got way more involved in research um, and research opportunities that they had at the university. Um, and then when I graduated, I did my, um, went right into grad school where I did my master's and PhD um, in um, like experimental psychology, brain and behavior psychology at the University of Southern Mississippi, um, where I got to work with um, the late Dr. Stan Kuchai in his marine mammal behavior and cognition lab. Um, once I finished, um, which was a great opportunity, it was work a lot with getting really into marine mammal related questions and research, which were a big passion of mine. So I feel very fortunate that I got to really get into that when I was in grad school. Um, and then I had a position at Georgia Southern University for a year um, where I got to fill in as the interim for their animal lab. I worked with rats, which was very different. Um, and then uh, finally getting into my position where I'm currently at at Eckerd and I'm in my fifth year here now um, in the animal studies program. That's amazing. And one thing that I find super interesting is the amount of people who will, you know, start off university on one type of course um, and then kind of not necessarily completely change direction. So there's there's definitely people that do that, but um, pivot slightly. So what was your reasoning behind initially choosing zoology? I really wanted to get in, try to get into more of the kind of intersection between like animals and biology mm-hmm. um, early on. And so I know not many places do have like a specific zoology um, related major. So that was very attractive about when I went to UNH. Um, and because I really had one, and I'd been fortunate, I actually had a class in high school um, that was called Honor Zoology, which was really unique. And that kind of really yeah. piqued my interest and kind of got me like aware that that was even a branch mm-hmm. um, of science early on. Um, so that I think definitely played a role too. Um, so I was really looking for that. And, you know, just knowing I wanted to have the option to, to do something that involved working with animals and the study of animals. Um, and their biology, but then 
kind of once I got there really open allowing myself to kind of explore and yeah. see like well what was it specifically about that 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 I really wanted to or I could see myself doing like um, long term and kind of being able to see the options of how you know what you do when you get past when you graduate um, which is always I know like the big question for for students that are starting university is like what am I going to do afterwards <laughs> Um, so yeah, kind of, definitely, for sure. And did you think that this was the path that you were going to go down? Like, did you think about maybe working on the like the animal care side? Did you think about education? Or did you mm-hmm. know that kind of research is more the direction you wanted to take? Early on, I think I was definitely drawn more to the animal care side. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I really knew that doing the kind of research that I do, which is really like behavioral in focus, um, and kind of gets into areas of obviously behaviorism, comparative psychology mm. and cognition and um, applied behavior analysis. I don't, I was definitely was not when I started out aware that that was like even a thing that you could get into. Um, it really came from kind of taking some of those different classes and then being exposed to it and being mm. like realizing that that's, that this was something people really did. Um, and get into and you start reading papers and kind of realizing that like these are things you want to read and you're interested in Um, and so that kind of is then what had me pivot more towards the research side was it that Mm. just really clicked with me Um, so I feel very fortunate that I was able to have those experiences and you know get to kind of see what part because I mean it's something I even tell my own students now is it's equally important to kind of sort out like what is it about the things you you know think you want to do that you like and also equally what do you not like both are yeah. really important because um, for yeah. some research is just not what they want to do and that's perfectly fine too um, but that's why I think it's so important to be able to explore try out new things um, you know I even I volunteered once I kind of got peaked interest in research we had a lab on my campus that uh, they were studying uh, horseshoe crab um, behavior like diurnal and nocturnal patterns um, and, you know, as an undergrad, it was just kind of, we had a chance to like watch videos and like track some movement. So, you know, well, not the most exciting thing in the world, but definitely got me started in building experience. Um, and so that was really helpful. Um, and so those kinds of things just kind of further kind of cemented, like I'm really interested in, in the research side. Um, and I still have a strong interest in sort of the care and training. And I, and I now work a lot with some amazing um, colleagues and collaborators who are more heavily into the side of animal care and training and so there's a very much like a like a collaborative relationship um, that comes about and so I don't feel like I had to like kind of ultimately lose either one I got to kind of pursue a path that was really what I wanted to do but still connects to the other parts of the field that I feel are really important as well. Yeah I love that and I think it's so worthwhile mentioning you know there's so many students out there even like last year of high school kind of wondering like oh god I really want to go to college but you know which degree choice is going to help me you know go where I really want to go but you know there's definitely room to pivot you know even once you're in and I always say if you choose something you genuinely enjoy or you're interested in start there you know if you have an interest in a subject go study it and then see where it's going to take you um you know for the animal care side even then we always say you know psychology is kind of the quote-unquote preferred degree choice but there's so much room within that you know there's plenty of trainers out there who have degrees in animal behavior animal science or zoology biology marine biology you know so it's not necessarily like a a one-size-fits-all there's definitely room um to kind of branch out a little bit once you're in 
Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And especially now kind of being on the other side of things, being the the college professor, um, working with students and undergrads who are, you know, new coming in and really having these kinds of questions. Um, That's something I always try to encourage with my students too is, you know, it's so you can always change your mind, you know, you're not signing your soul away that when you initially declare a major, you know, you always have to kind of see and think about, you know, is this, is this working? Do I see how I get from point A to point B? Um, and if you pivot, there's opportunities to, to pivot as needed, but just definitely to take advantage of experiences that allow you to, to see those different opportunities, learn what things you like, learn what you don't like. Um, and that's really important to do like while you're in that environment, especially yeah. starting out, um, you know, after high school and in college. Um, and especially I know I get that question a lot too, because our, for our major animal studies, it is like a newer program that not many colleges and universities have um, just yet. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, for you, you kind of were finding your feet going through college and, you know, taking on these different experiences, which I think is so positive as well. You know, I'm going to try this and, you know, now I'm going to try this and this has cropped up. So let's see what that's like. Can you, um, for the kind of fangirls out there, what was it like working with Stan? Oh, it was great. Um, yeah, like Stan definitely, um, obviously, was very prolific in the field, um, and and that was exciting because like often for for grad school, especially if research is your interest, you know, it's really about like who are you working with um, mm-hmm. because that leads to like the mentorship that's involved and the opportunities that um, ultimately you might get be able to see or be connected with. Um, so I felt very fortunate that I was able to um, work with Stan um, while I was able to. Um, you know, he was really great to learn from um, and really kind of started me getting interested in questions, especially because a lot of my research tends to focus on questions of individual differences mm-hmm. um, and behavioral patterning and kind of really taking a bottom up approach to looking at the function and context of behavior. So um, what I mean by that is, well, I'll look at you know, what behaviors are occurring, see what patterns emerge and how those behaviors occur, and then try to assign labels based on the patterns I see, but instead of coming in with pre-existing labels for behavior and then trying to see if I think it fits the label. Mm. Um, so obviously both are definitely seen in the field. Um, and so I know he was very passionate about individual differences and accounting for um, like individual animals kind of needs and perspectives and personality. And so that was something that um, really was striking to me too, and really informed a lot of the work that I do. Um, and I got to work with him for for several years until his passing. Um, and at the time, I was um, helping with running like the being like a lab manager, and so I got to take on some leadership roles um, working with him. Um, and you know, he was really great to work from, so it was a, a really great experience. And and of course, I know a lot of us who um, worked with him definitely still uh, miss him now that he's gone. I feel like the whole field is going to miss him. Like he was such a powerhouse and, you know, he was kind of always there, um, at least in my lifetime, you know, he was, he was always there. He was like the grandfather of the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, but I love the, the conversation surrounding individual differences because I feel like that is a conversation that is largely ignored kind of in the wider general public. You know, I feel like there's a tendency to kind of tar all animals or all species with one brush. You know, you could look at it in a species specific level of 
dolphins are not should not be in captivity but then you might look at otters and you know people are just like oh otters are so cute well why is it okay for otters and not okay for dolphins you know you've got to kind of look a little bit deeper but I know trainers at the very least will look much more individualistically and think you know which animals are slightly more resilient which animals need a little bit more of this type of help which animals enjoy this type of enrichment so could you maybe expand a little bit on the individual differences research for our listeners sure absolutely um so with and I agree like it's definitely something that you know and it's a double-edged sword because sometimes obviously looking at individual differences because you are trying to account um for changes that occur like obviously like some of the preferences and things I might do day-to-day are me different than what you would want to do even though obviously we're both mm-hmm. humans and <laughs> um and so it's that idea of trying to account for obviously there's going to be species level trends in behavior that we can look for and we can see that we can um, generally be able to talk about at like the group level. Um, but then what gets lost though, when we don't account for the individual. And so trying to look at um, when we look at individual differences, we're trying to account for one changes in behavior that you see like from individual to individual animal. Um, and that can be kind of as as micro as you want to get to it, depending on how much emphasis you can put on each individual's animal that you might be studying at the time. Um, but it also can really be related to just making sure you account for context as well um, in how you look at behavior and sort of understanding that behavior is going to change as a function of context. You know, the yeah. same way we we might be very outgoing and conversational and social when we're with our close friends but then if you're with strangers you're kind of maybe you're more shy and you're gonna tense up a bit more or maybe you're just as outgoing when you're with a group of strangers Um, but that's going to vary based on the individual Um, and so those two are really important it's kind of accounting for each animal kind of as an individual but also looking at context um, and really trying to understand the role of context that it plays on behavior um, especially for if you have cases where maybe you can't get at too micro of a level of looking at each individual, but being able to explain how context impacts behavior helps to highlight why we look at individual differences because the context might change the function for that particular animal, depending on their preferences or their you know learned history or things like mm. that. Um, so those are really important kind of parts, I think, when you look at um, individual differences is accounting for the context, environmental factors, um, and even things like if we know it, an animal's past history. Um, obviously, with working with animals in the wild, that can be a little harder to know. Like, what was your past experiences? Um, animals that we see in human care, um, we do have more of uh, ability to sometimes know like what that past history is and be able to help that inform on some of the different kind of behavioral patterns we see, um, and that can be really helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like any trainer who's listening to this will will be completely on your wavelength. Um, but for mm-hmm. anyone who hasn't studied animal behavior, how do you even begin to start picking apart what an animal is doing and why they're doing it? You know, not even on the marine mammal side, it could be any mm-hmm. animal. Like, how do you begin to quantify that? Yeah, and I think it really depends on you know, what kind, what aspect of their behavior you want to look at. And so one of the first things, like when I'm first teaching new students um, coming into my classes, just about how do we even approach looking at animal behavior and um, is, you know, we want to, um, sorry, excuse me. First, we have to know what are we looking for? 
Um, and so that's going to really involve um, first kind of creating like definitions for behavior. Um, and this is a tool that we use called an ethogram um, where you kind of, before you start trying to look, cause obviously you can have lists of behaviors that can go on for 40, 50 behaviors long. Um, or maybe you just want to look at, you know, changes you see in your pet dog and it's for a couple of key behaviors, like how much are they sitting or laying down or what is play to them. Um, but then we have to define them. And this is something I think that many people don't realize, like you have to put a lot more kind of intention into how we define behavior. Um, you know, even something as, as I'm looking at my dog staring at me as we talk, um, <laughs> and he's opening his mouth, like we don't want to define like an open mouth as, well, the dog opens its mouth because we're just restating the behavior. You know, I might want to say like their jaw is open, teeth are exposed, it's held for X amount of time um, in order to kind of really give myself like a visual picture mm. and get really descriptive with how we define behavior. Um, because if we don't know what we're looking for behaviorally, we can't quantify it. We can't count it. We can't measure how how often it's happening. We're not able to measure how long is it happening for. Um, we have to have really great definitions before we can start looking. Um, so that's usually, I think, the first step is really coming up with the list of behaviors that you, you want to look for to measure um, and having a really kind of clear understanding of what that behavior is and defining it in a way that paints a picture. You want to have mm. like strong action verbs. You want to use um, good descriptors that describe like the structure of behavior, like how how is a paw being lifted? Um, you know, what to what height? Are they holding it there? Is the body musculature going to be like more tense and rigid? Is it going to be more relaxed? Are ears down? Are ears up? Is head up? Is it looking at you? Um, all of those little details that I think we often, you know, think about and we picture it in our minds, but actually putting it down and writing it out so that you have like a clear understanding. Um, and then we can approach measuring behavior in a couple of different ways. I mean, there's definitely, you know, if you're interested in just knowing how often behavior occurs, mm -hmm. you can measure in terms of frequency, um, where you're looking at the total count of a behavior, um, like this happened five times. Okay, great. Um, you can look at duration. Um, which is looking at the length of a behavior, um, so measuring how long it's occurring for. Um, we can look at things like, it can be more challenging, look at things like intensity of behavior, kind of trying to assess like the power behind behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I often see that done more in like, acoustics work, um, or even things like latency. So if I, you know, want to know, um, you know, how well my dog is maybe holding a stay position between when I open the door to a guest, when they're gonna come and run up and see the guest, like at what point from when the door opens, do they finally break and run? Mm. Um, so it's like the amount of time from when you start something until you see the behavior happen. Um, those are just a couple of examples, um, but it depends on what kind of question you're interested in, but those are, but often I think the ones that most people, you know, regardless of, of your background are usually looking at are things like frequency and duration. Those are pretty common. Um, and then you can think about, well, you know, you don't necessarily, like, even I don't, like when I'm studying well, whatever animals I'm working with, um, I'm not usually looking at them for, you know, six hours straight and counting how many times something happens. You kind of set predetermined periods of time for maybe like a 30 minute vocal session. And I'm going to look um, and just count how many times behaviors happen in that set time period. 
Um, so you don't have to, it doesn't have to be like this thing you're doing constantly over a 24 hour period because it's not really sustainable. That's not realistic. Um, but you set up times where you want to take your measurements and you have what you're looking for, you have how you want to record it, and then you start recording it. Um, so they're just some of the ways to kind of, from like a basic level of getting started and thinking about like, how would I measure a question of behavior? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it really is so unbelievably helpful. You know, as trainers, we definitely have a good understanding of our animal's behavior. Um, and we obviously put that into practice. But, you know, I never shut up about the fact that we need more scientific research behind us that supports what we are seeing every single day. Um, and I'm sure you can speak to some of the benefits of studying animal behavior with the way that it can then impact animal welfare. Mm hmm. Oh, absolutely. Because um, there's definitely a lot of behavioral correlates that we know about that have been like well-researched um, by multiple individuals that we see connected to questions of welfare. Um, because behavior is going to be like an output that animals can do. It's something that they're going to produce that can maybe give us an indication that something is you know, going great or something's off. Um, and especially for me, one of the questions I sometimes look at is, in animals that I have the ability to long-term study and develop um, like a kind of their baseline pattern, um, which is typically like, what is their typical behavioral actions on a relatively day-to-day -day basis? And because if I know that, and then I start to see changes um, in that pattern, it can let me know, okay, is this a change that indicates something is, is going wrong? Is there some, is there like an injury? Are they, are they not feeling great? Mm -hmm. um, or is there been a change in the environment and they're like, this is new, I, I'm, I'm responding to it. Um, it kind of gives a, a kind of gauge to, to help inform on how different things in the environment um, are maybe impacting their typical behavior expression. Um, and that can sometimes I think be helpful in a variety of contexts. Um, but especially when working in collaboratively with different animal care teams as, um, and be able to let them know or give um, information I have from the patterns that we see um, can sometimes be helpful um, just to know like if something that they were wanting to see was happening, um, did this have an effect on them? Did it not really impact them? Um, and different animals react differently um, to different things. Um, and yeah. so that can be really helpful um, as a tool because I mean, it's, as a research tool, it's really great because that's also a question I'm interested in very much sometimes is, well, how do different factors of the environment change behavior mm -hmm. um, and in what ways? And then being able to track that and chart that out over time and see um, really more kind of quantitatively what that change is. And it gives like a great picture, especially visually um, and using tools from charting and kind of pulling from some of the um, like ABA related um, work from applied behavior analysis, um, which does also emphasize very much like the individual yeah. um, allows us to really look at those kinds of questions. Definitely. And um, how does it make you feel as an animal behaviorist when you see um, maybe some ignorant comments online of um, activists or even just like the media making inferences about animal behavior and stating it as fact? Oh, <laughs> um, it could definitely sometimes be frustrating. I, I sometimes when I'm trying to highlight or you know pull examples from more popular media to show like in class and then highlight the study it came from. Um, we actually sometimes do an assignment where we have students compare the the kind of 
the pop media related reporting of the study and then read the actual study and then kind of right. compare contrast. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when that, when we do that, they're like, wait, this was really different. Or in some ways they, it goes great. In some ways it, it doesn't. And so it, it just really depends on, I think, you know, how the story is being presented. And there's definitely some, you know, taglines that, you know, we're trying to get attention, um, which I can understand, but um, I usually qual- add qualifiers of like, so this is actually what's happening. Like this type of word doesn't best capture what's really happening. So try to be aware, um, you know, it can get a lot because obviously it's very pervasive um, nowadays as we have not only, you know, news media, there's social media, there's so many outlets and um, there's definitely sometimes some some misinformation, I think that on how certain kind of findings or terms are being um, presented and that um, can be hard sometimes to overact. I think there are different words that just have such a built kind of learned history from like a social construct standpoint. Mm. Um, and that can be really hard to, to overcome. Definitely. I mean, even like, you know, um, like I teach a lot of, of related behaviorism topics. And obviously when I talk about like reinforcement and punishment concepts, you know, the term punishment, you know, brings forth a lot of, of feelings and I have to really stress in my students. Well, we're, we're just talking about it from learning theory. It's about you add it or take, took away something and behavior decreases. It's, and, and getting into kind of the differences between, you know, what we think of as punishment versus like a technical term in this particular context of learning theory. Um, I think that's like a term that has, is a good example of that. Yeah, I really like um, that you use that example, actually, because it also shows the ability of people to kind of really have an open mind and think about it in regards to behavior and how behavior is altered rather than, you know, something bad happening or something good happening to an animal. Um, yeah, the punishment mm-hmm. one is always is always an interesting one for that, too. And going back to the way like the media portray things, um, the best example I can think of, and I don't know if you use this one, is when um, the study of imitation came out with the Marineland killer whales and the media uh, reported all of it as um, trainers teaching killer whale to speak. Um, and that was not the study at all. <laughs> the study <laughs> was, can these animals imitate vocalizations? Um, Mm -hmm. And yes, human voices were a part of that, but it was never like we're teaching them language. Um, So yeah, the media definitely wants sensational headlines because, you know, it's going to generate the most clicks. But what about kind of the lay person? Um, I literally was just in a zoo the other day, just on a trip. We took our dog. It was great. Um, And the amount of times you overhear comments about, um, oh, that tiger looks sick. Or, oh, you know, those goats look in really bad condition. Or, oh, um, this exhibit looks really small, you know. And I understand it. You know, we tend, as humans, we tend to put our own thoughts and feelings onto, you know, environments. And we tend to think like, oh, is this something we would like? What What are your feelings about that? If you overhear those kind of comments. Yeah, no, I think it's it's definitely a sign, obviously, what you mentioned of it's very common for us to put our own thoughts and feelings onto animals, you know, anthropomorphism as, is this what this is known as, and it's very common. Um, and, you know, I talk about this a lot in different classes I teach too, um, including one I'm teaching right now is called animal welfare science and really stressing kind of distinction between, well, thinking about welfare um, and animals behavior from, you know, what we would want for ourselves as humans versus 
What about trying to take the species perspective? Um, and it can be hard to kind of sometimes convey that, but to try to really stress or try to remind individuals that um, some of the things that you know we're, we might see in animals' behavior actually indicate that they're doing great. Like some animals do sleep most of the day. Um, and it's not a, a sign that there's something wrong or that they're depressed, but they just are known to sleep 22 hours a day. And sometimes I wish I could do that. And, uh, great. Um, but then others like that could be, but then for another species that could be an indicator that yeah. something is, is not right. And so um, I think that can be sometimes hard to really, to really get across, even though, and this is why I think education, you know, both in, in like in the zoo environment and aquarium, as well as in other um, contexts too, is so important of trying to really highlight that, you know, not all animals are not going to be mm-hmm. having the same needs or demonstrate behaviorally um, aspects in the same way as it would be for us. Uh, and that's going to be yeah. hard to do because obviously as hard as we try, um, you know, I'm never going to know what it's like to ex- to be like, you know, a dog experience or to be a dolphin experience because I'm not a dog or I'm not a dolphin. Um, you know, but I think just even just having the awareness that they can have different experiences yeah. and that we're trying and, and I know many are, are looking into trying to better understand, um, you know, the, that species perspective component in mm. terms of looking at individual differences and behavior. Um sometimes just that awareness alone helps to kind of combat the, I think, you know, shortcut desire we have of like, oh, like, well, how would I want, what would I want versus like, okay, well, what would the the animal want? And then trying to, to balance that. And so, you know, normally, um, you know, obviously it's going to be hard to, to get that thought to everyone, but I think just even thinking about um, trying to look into more of like, okay, like what's relevant to this species? Yeah. Um, you know, maybe they don't have a need for for this, or maybe they they really have a need for this. That is something we don't do in any way whatsoever. So it's hard mm-hmm. for us to really think about it. Um, is helpful to start kind of thinking about the ways we kind of perceive animals differently. Um, yeah. And I think that comes about a lot through like different education opportunities. Yeah, I think also you know everyone's an expert these days, right? You know, every everyone likes to think um, they have a doctor in Google. Um, and I feel like this is, I have an example of this. Um, I started my career volunteering with sea lions in Scotland at a safari park that I'd gone to for years. And six months before I started volunteering, I went with my friends from university just to visit. And we were sitting in the stadium and my friend had been going on about, oh, I don't know if I should be here. Should I support zoos? Blah, blah, blah. And I was basically just like, shut up, sit down, you paid your ticket, enjoy it. Um, and she pointed out that the sea lions were very hyped up during the show like they were rocking on their stands and like moving their heads around a lot and she was like oh it's good like they look like they're really enjoying it like that's made me feel better and I remember at the time not really thinking much of it like yes or no I wasn't didn't know much about animal behavior and then once I started volunteering there I learned that it was a behavior that they had been reinforced for because it looked good to the public and now it was just ingrained in those sea lions and they were actively trying to train it out of them (laughs) that they were actively not reinforcing these sea lions now for moving around like that because they wanted them to be calm Um, so Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example of most people don't really know what's going on and even for me like with 10 years of experience training animals if I go to a facility I've never worked at and animals with a learning history that I don't understand 
I cannot make inferences or assumptions on what is going on with their behavior because I do not know them. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think uh, I think we should that should be our takeaway from <laughs> from today. But if anyone is interested in potentially um, joining your course of animal studies or wants to learn a little bit more, where can they do that? Um, definitely. So uh, coming, you know, looking for just general information about our program. So we are a like a full major that students can pursue here. And we're interdisciplinary, which is really great. It, it really pulls from all the fields that really and looking at where do they center around animals, um, and which for me was really like I found home um, because, you know, obviously I have a mixed background that's pulling from biology and psychology. Um, but I'm not really fully a full biologist or full psychologist. I'm a, I'm a blend and I, I pull from these different areas. Um, and so the major really highlights pulling areas that come from not only like the social sciences, the natural sciences, and even some of the humanities um, and seeing like, where do they layer um, surrounding animals? Um, and so students who might be interested in learning more about um, our program, the courses we offer, um, definitely can be, come check out our website um, from Eckerd College Animal Studies um, and looking at the, the structure of our program. Um, and we do really highlight, you know, applied learning and hands-on learning, um, but even all of our students um, are required to complete like an internship um, to really start building their experience in this field. Um, but that is kind of a first place stop to look and learn more about some of what the program entails um, and learn more about Eckerd College um, we are located, you know, in St. Petersburg, um, right along Boca Ciega Bay. Um, there, it's right on the water, which is lovely for some students to be able to live. Um, and we're really, I think, wonderfully located um, just in an area where there is so much wildlife um, in terms of, you know, obviously wildlife that we see even on our campus. My gosh, there are a number of animals that we encounter and can do things with and just see and study. Um, to practice, but also we have so many wonderful facilities, zoos and aquariums in our areas that our students can work with and volunteer with, and um, they come in and will work with our courses as well. Um, even areas that you get involved with farm-based animals, if livestock is something they're interested in, um, or with um, different animal shelters, um, seeing at dog programs, things like that. If more of the domestic species, pets is your interest, they really have um, a lot of of really great opportunities in our area. Um, and so definitely if you're interested, I encourage you to, to check out um, our website and kind of learn more about um, our program. That's amazing. Well, Erin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with us today. Uh, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. No, I've been, it's been really great to chat with you too. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will catch you all next week.